Unwanted, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this is our season four finale. Crazy. Already. (laughs) Just like that. (laughs) I am impressed with us, to say the least. Same. I really liked this season. Me too. I think we say this every season finale, but I think this is my favourite season. I think we just keep getting better. We do. (laughs) Like, the... (laughs) The production quality is outstanding at this point. As we sit on the floor. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) It's not about how it gets done, it's about how well it gets done. That's true. So, yeah, given that this is our season finale, before we get into it, let's just tell all of our avid listeners (laughs) what is happening next. So, we have a few surprises up our sleeve. Mm -hmm. The first of our special episodes i guess you could call them will be with you in june so yes it's not very long to wait at all but this is our last season of the year we yes. will not be back with another full season until next year sorry to disappoint, disappoint. <laughs> i'm sure everyone's I'm sure. gonna be gutted absolutely distraught <laughs> how he's gonna survive a friday <laughs> honestly but it just means that we will be back bigger and better than ever yeah. Next year. So that's very exciting. We just need a little break. Yeah. We've done Not a lot. Not for any bad reason, just, you know. No, it's just... We just need to chill for a moment. <laughs> yeah, basically, also, I don't read very fast, and I've <laughs> run out of books. <laughs> so I need to read. Yeah. So I will be reading lots and lots, and I'm sure you will be reading about another four seasons worth <laughs> in the same amount of time. Probably, yeah. <laughs> and we'll have plenty to talk about when we get back. Exactly. But for now... For the last time this season. What are you infatuated with? I am infatuated with Gallant by V.E. Schwab. That is, yeah, I was waiting for this one. Yeah. Once again, I have to say, I was sent a proof copy of this book before it came out by Titan. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Titan. Um, In exchange for a review... I have since purchased my own finished copy, just not that I have to say that, but I just would like you to know that I did. This isn't my review, I just love the book. I want to talk about it. Yay! Also, I feel like our listeners would like to know that I met V.E. Schwab. I feel like they would very much like to know that. (laughs) She's amazing, obviously. She did an event in Edinburgh for Gallant and I got to get my book signed and say hello and she is just as lovely and inspiring and as funny in person as she is online i didn't get to say like a lot to her but like i got to say hi and it was it was just very nice it was a very wholesome evening (laughs) that is very wholesome i'm very glad you got to do that i know oh also because she hadn't done any in-person events for addy larue because Mm. that came out during the pandemic it was almost like a joint addy gallant thing so she kind of talked as much about addy as she did about gallant which was very nice that's pretty cool um which is the book that i like discovered her through so it was very nice so yeah, Gallant came out in March of this year, 2022, and is about a girl called Olivia Pryor. Olivia has grown up in an orphanage. She has no family. She also has no voice. She's non-verbal. Ooh. The only thing... <gasps> I did my whole dissertation on non-verbal characters. I know, I've been holding this back because I wanted to talk oh to you about God. it. Oh my God, But yes, yeah, you'll really like talk it. Talk to me. <laughs> Um, so yeah the only thing she has of her parents is her mother's old journal which seems to descend into madness 
But the one passage she always returns to, which is written to Olivia, says, Remember this, the shadows are not real, dreams can never hurt you, and you will be safe as long as you stay away from Gallant. Okay. She doesn't know what Gallant is. And then one day she receives a letter from her uncle calling her to the prior family estate. It's called Gallant. <laughs> so she goes, despite the warning, because she's always wanted family. And she's like, well, here's an uncle that I didn't know I have, so I'm going to go. And discovers that her uncle is not there. He died a year ago. And as well, she discovers at the bottom of the garden there, there's a crumbling wall with a locked door on it that seemingly leads to nowhere. I just realised no one can see my face. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm revving. <laughs> yeah. So that is the setup for the book. Um, it's basically marketed as, I don't know if it's on this or if Schwab just said it. No, it's not in here. But it's basically marketed as, like, the secret garden meets Crimson Peak. Okay. Creepy vibes. In the best way, this book doesn't have much plot. (laughs) It's very much a gothic novel which relies on atmosphere and feeling rather than a lot of action. So the novel really is just about Olivia exploring Gallant, trying to get to know her cousin who doesn't want her to be there. And... Of course, this is not a spoiler. She does go beyond the wall and we get to see what is there. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) So to give you a hint as to what is beyond the door, I thought I would read the first page of this book. So this is just like, again, it's like a little sort of prelude, but it's right Mm. before the book starts. The master of the house stands at the garden wall. It is a grim stretch of stone, an iron door locked and bolted at its centre. There is a narrow gap between the door and the rock, and when the breeze is right, it carries the scent of summer, sweet as melon, and the distant warmth of sun. There is no breeze tonight. No moon, and yet he is bathed in moonlight. It catches the edges of his tattered coat. It shines on the bones where they show through his skin. He trails his hand along the wall, searching for cracks. Stubborn strands of ivy follow in his wake, questing like fingers into every fissure, and nearby a bit of stone breaks free and tumbles to the ground, exposing a narrow slice of someone else's night. The culprit, a field mouse, scrambles through, and then down the wall, over the master's boot. He catches it in one hand, with all the grace of a snake. He bends his head to the crack fastens his milk-white eyes on the other side, the other garden, the other house. In his hand, the mouse squirms and the master squeezes. Hush, he says, in a voice like empty rooms. He is listening to the other side, to the soft chirp of birdsong, the wind through lush leaves, the distant pleading of someone in their sleep. The master smiles and picks up the bit of broken rock and nestles it back into the wall, where it waits like a secret. The mouse has stopped squirming in the cage of his grip. When he opens his hand, there is nothing left but a streak of ash and rot and a few white teeth, little bigger than seeds. He tips them out onto the wasted soil and wonders what will grow. Oh. Yep. (laughs) The shadows cannot hurt you indeed. Mm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the phrase, a voice like empty rooms. Yeah, that stood out a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It's just great. 
Um, I also like the melon. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. That was good for their speech. So yeah, the master of the house here is the master of Gallant, but not Olivia's Gallant, because behind the wall is another version of Gallant, the shadow version. And I love that for so many reasons. <laughs> we love a we love a gothic doubled house in this season as exactly. well. Exactly. Because, yeah, obviously we were talking about that in our episode with Hannah, when mm. she was talking about Coraline. But I, just, I love gothic houses, and I love doppelgangers, and I love that this is a mixture of the two, it's of a house being a doppelganger. Um, very miniaturist of it. Very true. But, yeah, the real Gallant is a house that Olivia has been longing for her entire life it's still pretty creepy to be fair as you'll see but the shadow gallant is a place of death like a total mirroring so i thought today because i'm not really going to talk about plot because there isn't much plot (laughs) um i'm just going to read passages about the houses um so i'll start with the real gallant in this passage it's olivia's first night there um, she's been greeted by the housekeeper and groundskeeper Hannah and Edgar and her cousin Matthew. None of them knew she was coming and then this passage also introduces you to some of the other elements of the story. Some of her mother's diary is in this bit and also the fact that Olivia can see ghosts. Oh. Just, she just can. Random. Um, okay. So this is also when Olivia gets her first hint that there is another gallant but she doesn't quite realise it yet. <laughs> it's so creepy it's such a creepy concept I love I it <laughs> Olivia cannot sleep the house has too much space and too few sounds to fill it there are no city noises here no squeaking springs no matron shuffling up and down the halls no clatter of the streets beyond instead of the sleeping and wheezing and sighing of two dozen girls there is only her own breath her own movement in the too big bed And so she lies awake, her mother's journal pressed to her chest as she listens, straining to find the melody of Gallant. Olivia spent years learning the notes that made up Merrillance, the shuffle of shocked feet, the sleep-thick murmurs in the middle of the night, the whistle and pop of the radiators, the tap of the head matron's cane on the wooden floor as she crossed the house. Here, inside her borrowed room, she hears nothing. Earlier, she heard Hannah and Edgar moving about, their voices little more than highs and lows through the walls. She heard a door slam and guessed that it was Matthew. But now it is late and all the noises have settled, leaving only a muffled silence, the walls too thick, the night kept out by locks and shutters. Olivia cannot bear the quiet. She strikes a match, eliciting a satisfying crack as light blooms, pushing back the dark. Something twitches at the corner of her sight, but it is only the small flame dancing on the walls. She lights a taper and opens her mother's book to read, even though she knows the words by heart. She lingers on the early entries, the ones before her mother lost her mind. I had a bird once. I kept it in a cage. But one day someone let it go. I was so angry then, but now I wonder if it was me. If I rose in the night, half asleep, and slipped the lock and set it free. Free, a small word for such a magnificent thing. As she reads, she lets her fingers wander over the strange drawings. In the unsteady light, her eyes play tricks on her, twisting the blooms of ink until they seem like they're moving. She doesn't like to linger on the later entries, the darker ones, so she pages past them, 
catching only fragments. I slept in your ashes last night. It was never this quiet. His voice in your mouth. I want to go home. Until at once, it stops. The jagged writing drops away, leaving only empty space, blank pages stretching to the very last page where the letter waits. Olivia, Olivia, Olivia. Her gaze drops to the bottom of the page. You will be safe as long as you stay away from Gallant. She squints at the word, so long a mystery, still a mystery. She flings off the covers and gets to her feet. For so long, Gallant was nothing but a word, the last one her mother ever wrote. Now she knows it is a place, and she is here. If she is not allowed to stay beyond the night, well then, she wants to see as much of it as possible. To learn the contours of the house where her mother lived, as if knowing one will help explain the other. The key turns with a whisper in the lock, and she steps silently into the hall. Every other room is dark, save one, a narrow strip of light beneath the door. She shields her candle and sets out, slipping barefoot down the hall. Olivia has always relished sound, but she knows now to be quiet. Some nights, back at Maryland, she'd creep out of bed and wander through the darkened house, pretend it was a kind of conquest. She'd twirl down the empty halls, just because she could. Count the steps from one side to the other, fog the windows with her breath and draw shapes in the steam, the only witness the ghoul that sat on the stairs and peered at her between the railings. There, in the dark, she could pretend the place was hers. But for all she tried, the grim grey building never played its part. It was too cold, too hollow, too much itself, and every night when she climbed back into bed, she was reminded that Marylance was a house, but it would never be a home. She tells herself that Gallant won't be one either, not if Matthew has his way. And yet, as she makes her way down the stairs, the polished banister beneath her palm, it all feels so... familiar. With every silent step, the house leans in and whispers, Hello, whispers, welcome, whispers, home. She retraces her steps, crossing the foyer to the sitting room, the fire nothing but a handful of ticking embers now the broken vase swept up from the floor. From there, she wanders deeper into the heart of the house. She discovers a dining room, the table long enough to seat a dozen, a lounge with furniture that looks untouched, a kitchen, still warm. As Olivia crosses the house, the candle wavers, and so does her shadow. When she shifts the light from hand to hand, it leaps unsteadily around her, so it takes her a moment to realise she is not alone. The girl stands halfway down the hall. A woman, or at least the pieces of her, hanging in the air like smoke. A curtain of dark hair, a narrow shoulder, a hand drifting out as if to touch her. Olivia jerks backward in surprise, expecting the girl to disappear. It doesn't. Instead, it turns its back on her and moves swiftly down the hall, drifting in and out of sight like a body between lamplights. Wait! she thinks as it plunges away from her, as it reaches the door at the end and passes straight through. Olivia hurries after it, feet pounding across the rug, candle nearly guttering as she throws the door open into shallow darkness. As she steps inside, the taper reveals a study, high-ceilinged and windowless. She turns, searching the corners, but the ghoul is gone. Olivia lets out an unsteady breath. She always wondered if the things she saw were bound to Marylance. 
whether the building was haunted or she was. Apparently, it wasn't the school. She turns to go and the candle wavers in her hand, light dancing over bookshelves, a dark wood desk, before catching on the curve of metal resting there. Olivia frowns, stepping toward the strange shape, nearly as tall as she is. If there is a word for it, she doesn't know. It looks mechanical, half clock and half sculpture, a kind of orb made of concentric rings, each set at a different angle. Up close, she sees that there are two houses set inside the piece, each one balanced on its own metal ring. Her fingers twitch. She cannot shake the feeling that the slightest push would set the whole off balance and bring the model crashing to the floor. And yet, she cannot help herself. Her hand drifts up and the door groans behind her. Olivia turns, too fast, and the candle in her hand goes out, plunging the room into black. Fear grips her, sudden and sharp. She abandons the study, blinking furiously, willing her eyes to adjust. But the shutters are all latched, and the darkness in the house is thick as syrup. She feels her way back down the hall, reminding herself she is not afraid of the dark, even though she has never known a dark like this. The house seems to grow around her, the hallways branching, multiplying, until she is sure she is lost. And then, to her right, her vision lifts, the darkness thinning until she can just make out the edges of the space. Somewhere, there is a light. Not bright, but watery and white. She turns down a narrow hall and finds another, smaller foyer. And there, at the back of it, a door. There are two kinds of doors in a house. The kinds that lead from room to room, and the kinds that lead from inside to out. And this is one of those. Thin light spills through a small glass pane set into the wood. She has to stand on her toes to see through the window, and when she does, she finds a crescent moon hanging in the sky, showering the garden below in strands of silver. The garden, the one she first glimpsed when the car pulled around the drive, the promise of something lovely tucked behind the house. Even in the dark, it is a sight. Trees and trellised roses, gravel paths and groomed flowers and a carpet of grass. She wants to throw the door open and spill out into the night, wants to walk barefoot through the blades, wants to feel the velvet petals of the roses, lie on a bench beneath the moon, wants to breathe in the beauty before she is sent away. She tries the door, but it is locked. Olivia pats the pockets of her nightgown, wishing she'd brought her set of picks. But then she feels the gold key that fit her bedroom door. It's a simple shape, little more than a W. And in a house with so many doors, would you really want more than one key? Olivia slides the one she has into the lock and holds her breath and turns, expecting resistance. Instead, she feels the satisfying thunk of a bolt sliding free. The handle is cool under her touch and when she turns the knob, the door whispers open, just a crack carrying cool night air and a man surges out of the dark. He comes straight through the wooden door and into the foyer. Half his face is missing and Olivia staggers back, away from the door and the man who is not a man at all, but a ghoul. It scowls at her with one eye, a stained hand thrust out, not in welcome, but in warning. It cannot touch her, she tells herself. It isn't there. But when it stomps forward, fingers curling into fists, she turns and runs blindly through the dark somehow finds her way back to the staircase and the upstairs hall and her bedroom door, pulling it shut behind her. 
and even though it's only wood, she feels safer with it closed. Olivia's heart pounds in her ears as she climbs under the covers, pulling her mother's journal to her like a shield. She has never been afraid of the dark, but tonight she relights the lamp. As she sits, her back to the headboard and her eyes in the shadows, she realises she left the key in the door downstairs. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry, that was quite long. But... <laughs> no, that was good, though. It's such a good scene-setting passage. Also, what is it about, like, fancy estate gardens at night mm. that make you want to walk in them? Like, yeah. I never want to go out at night until I'm somewhere that's, like, out in the countryside <laughs> with, like, groomed flower beds. And then I'm yeah. like, yeah, that, that looks like a good idea. It's just very pleasing, isn't it? It is. So, yeah, so that was the real gallant. And now on to the, the other gallant, the shadow gallant. I'm not going to explain this too much, but basically Olivia realises that her mother's journal fits in a little gap in the door that's in the garden wall. For reasons. Okay. <laughs> She's, like, testing that out, and then this happens. Olivia's fingers drop from the journal and it sits there, resting comfortably in the gap for the length of an inhale. And then the world breathes out. The wind picks up. A sudden gust rustles her dress and tugs at her hair and knocks the journal from its perch. If the wind had blown the other way, the journal would have tumbled toward her, fallen at her feet. But it blows at her back and the journal tips through the gap, vanishing beyond the wall. Olivia hisses through her teeth. She pulls on the old door, but of course it's locked, so she hurries to the edge of the wall, the place where the stone crumbles away to nothing, the grasses on either side growing together, this side tangling with that. It is just a step, she tells herself. And yet, she hesitates, glances back over her shoulder at the garden and the looming house, Matthew's warning heavy on the air. But she's not afraid of stories. Sure, there are strange things in the world, dead things that lurk in shadows, houses full of ghosts. But this is just a wall, and standing here, at the edge, she can see the field beyond. Peering round the broken stone, she spots the journal lying in the wet grass, waiting to be retrieved. Olivia takes a breath and rounds the wall. Her borrowed yellow book crosses the line, and it is the strangest thing, but in that moment she thinks of the statue in the fountain, the woman's hand thrust out, not in welcome, but in warning, as if to say, turn back, stay away. But the woman faces the world, not the wall, and Olivia's boot lands soundly on the ground. It is one step. A single stride between here and there, the side facing Gallant and the one facing the fields beyond. One step, and she half expects to feel some magic current, some errant breeze forcing her forward or buffeting her back, but the truth is, she feels nothing. No warning shift, no sudden plunge, no skin-crawling sense of a world gone wrong. Just the old familiar thrill of doing something you've been told not to. Just to be sure, Olivia takes a step back, onto the garden side. Nothing. How silly she feels then, like a child hopping between paving stones as if some are made of lava. She crosses the wall again, glancing back over her shoulder at Gallant, still there, unchanged before turning her attention to the world beyond. It looks the same. An empty field, an unkempt version of the grassy slope, her mother's green journal lying at the base of the wall where it fell. She marches toward it, but halfway there, another gust of wind kicks up. 
It flings the cover back and steals the once torn pages, scattering them across the still damp grass. Olivia lets out a silent yelp and chases after them. One has snagged on a thistle nearby. One has caught against a sturdy reed. One she plucks out of the air as it sails past. One lies dampened in the dirt. The last has fallen farther out in the field, and by the time she retrieves it, the hem of her blue dress is wet, her bare legs cold, her yellow galoshes slick with mud and leaves. She trudges back to the wall where the journal lies open, pages drifting back and forth in the breeze. She returns the damp and crumpled pages to the book, resolving to find tape or glue when she gets back to the house to fix them in place. It's getting late, or at least she thinks it is. The low clouds have erased the line between day and dusk, making it impossible to tell the time. So she tucks the journal under her arm and hurries back to the edge of the wall, hoping no one has noticed her absence. Hoping that Hannah is still by the fire, and Edgar is still humming in the kitchen, and Matthew is still asleep in his bed, and not at the piano, his eyes trained on the garden and the gate. The way his mood would darken if he saw her rounding the wall. But when she gets to the edge of the stone, it isn't there. Olivia looks up, confused. It's roughly twelve strides from the wall's edge to the door, she measured. But she has walked that much, and now the crumbling edge hovers in the distance, another twelve ahead. She walks toward it, but with every stride, the wall grows longer, the end out of reach. She breaks into a clumsy run, trying to outpace the stone, but it is always one step ahead. It goes on and on, and Olivia slows, breathless, panic worming through her limbs. She twists around, intending to head back for the iron gate, and stops. The field is gone. There is no tall grass, no thistles, no wild world. In its place, there is a garden. Or at least, the shriveled remains of a garden. Weathered limbs and wilting blooms, their petals pale, their leaves devoid of colour. There is an orchard to one side, its branches bare, and the remains of a vegetable patch to the other, its contents long gone to seed and rot. And there, at the top of the ruined garden, sits another gallant. <laughs> oh, I know. I like the acknowledgement of all the tropes at the start, when she's like, oh, I expected to feel this or that. Or yeah, this yeah, or yeah. That. And then the, that wall... Yeah, the fact that it just keeps getting longer and longer. That's so disturbing. I love that. And I love that, like, you're reading it and you know that something bad's going to happen because you know that she's been told to not go to the other side. But also when she goes to the other side and she's like, oh, it's fine. You're just reading it like, oh, when's the thing going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's really good suspense. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, so I want to describe the Shadow Gallant a little more. So this is the beginning of the following chapter. I think this is just my last quote because I didn't want to go too too mad with this one after our last episode. <laughs> Once, back at Marylands, Matron Sarah held a drawing class. Olivia had already begun to teach herself. A habit started early. There was a kind of power in capturing the world around her distilling it to lines and curves, a language of gestures that anyone could understand. But in this class, the girls were told to draw themselves. The matron gave each a sheet of paper and a pencil and showed each of them how to render their own face, how to measure the distance of their eyes, the angle of their nose and cheeks and smile, and then she set them loose. 
A small stack of mirrors lay in the centre of the table, some new and others silvered, some cracked and others whole. There weren't enough to go around, so the girls had to share, stealing glimpses of themselves whenever they could, which meant that angles in the light were always changing, and when the time was up and the portraits tacked on the wall, the room was full of faces and every one of them was wrong. A distorted reflection, strange, unnerving. That is what Olivia sees when she looks at the house beyond the wall. It has all the right features, arranged the wrong way. A drawing done too much from memory or a contour sketch, where you do not lift the pen, and all the lines connect and bleed together into something abstract, a stylized impression. Overhead, the dusk has somehow dropped away, the sky an inky black. There is no moon, no stars, and yet it is not empty. No, it is like a lake, a vast expanse of dark water, the kind of dark that tricks the eye, makes you see things where there are none, or miss things when they are there. The dark that lives in the spaces you know you should not look, lest you catch sight of other eyes staring back. Olivia retreats, pressing herself back against the wall, expecting stone, and shivering when she feels the kiss of iron instead. The door. She pushes, but it doesn't move. She searches for a keyhole. Perhaps there is one on this side, but there's not even a handle, nothing but a film of debris on the metal, dead ivy and leaves that flake away like rust or skin. She presses her eye to the narrow gap and sags with relief when she sees Gallant, the real Gallant, still sitting on the other side, dusk settling over the garden. Her mind goes to the strange metal sculpture in the study, the two houses facing each other across the twisting spheres. A shadow moves across a window, Hannah, and Olivia pounds on the door, expecting the sounds to carry, to echo, but it doesn't. The iron swallows the noise like silk or down or moss. As she watches, Hannah lifts one hand to close the shutter, locking out the dark and her. Olivia takes a step back and feels the small crunch of something beneath her boot. Looking down, she finds a handful of small white seeds scattered at her feet. She bends to take one up, feels the point between her finger and thumb and realises they are not seeds at all, but tiny teeth. She looks around and sees a handful of other bones, thin and brittle, bits of beak and paw and wing, and her first thought is, here are all the animals she should have heard and seen at Gallant. She doesn't realise her hand has closed over the little tooth until it jumps, shudders like a bee against her palm. Olivia gasps, cold prickling up her arm as she lets go, and by the time it hits the ground, it's not a writhing bit of bone, but a mouse. A small, grey-furred thing that skitters away into the wasted garden. Olivia stares down at her palm, now empty, and wonders what the hell is happening, if she fell in the field and hit her head, if this is yet another dream. She looks up at the house that is not gallant. The shutters hang open, and a pale glow suffuses the windows. A light is on somewhere inside. She hovers for a moment, uncertain what to do, wishing she had more than a journal in her hands, but knowing she can't stay here, standing like a solitary tree beneath that eerie sky, exposed. She cannot go back, it seems, and so at last her feet carry her forward. It's giving the Pride Lands and the Outlands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And yeah, that's kind of all I'm going to read out today. 
the bits with like the master and the house are just so good and I like want to read them but I feel like they give too much away mm. it's very good <laughs> um, yeah some genuinely horrifying things happen from there on yeah um, I can sense that <laughs> yeah but yeah I just wanted to shout out the design of this book not like the cover but the inside pages as you flick through you can see a few different design choices being made so the parts of the book that follow the master of the house I will just show you are actually printed on black paper oh that's cool with white writing so it's like a complete inverse of the rest of the text um, that follows Olivia there's also illustrations throughout the book I'll just find one to show you like this one. Oh, that's cool and these are illustrations that are part of the story so they're drawings that Olivia like has that she can see they're in the journal that's cool um and finally Olivia's mother's journal is in here so there's obviously lines from it like pulled throughout the text because I've like read out some of them but when you get to the middle of the book you actually just have the journal oh wow um so it kind of just looks as if it's been like scanned in like in its entirety I just think it's a really cool That's really detail. cool design as well to have that like block of black pages in yeah, the middle exactly. of the light. Yeah, which is very cool because the, lots of the special editions have the sprayed edge so mm. you don't actually see ah. it because it'll like my edition, not this one, but my like Waterstones one, it's, it's all red. Okay. So you can't actually see that there's a big dark bit until you like sort of flick through the pages, mm. which I think is quite cool. And yeah, I just feel like all these details make the book feel very, like, special. Because Schwab said at her event, and I think she said this online as well, that she wrote it to be the kind of book that you would pick up and just devour in one sitting. Mm. So I feel like all those design details make it feel like a tangible piece of story, if that makes sense. Because it feels like you're holding, like, an artefact (laughs) as well as just, like, a book. And yeah, it's very different from other books, but still has that quite lyrical style that I love Swab for. Um, I've not talked a lot about Olivia being like non-verbal but again she said at her event like she liked the idea of writing a character who couldn't speak but was not quiet. Yeah. And like the idea of people making noise even though they can't use their voice. So I think you would really like that bit of the book. Well and the rest of it. I am very intrigued by that. I am so fascinated by mutant non-verbal characters on the page because it's not it's a silent medium yeah but obviously it's very noisy in your head yeah I just think it's so cool (laughs) so yeah I just really love it I also like I obviously I'm very grateful whenever I get sent a book but this is the one that I got sent like the proof copy of and like lost my mind over yeah it's like I can't believe I got (laughs) that so yeah biggest fan moment yeah (laughs) (laughs) no it sounds awesome (laughs) what are you infatuated with you know it's a it's a book about a really creepy setting with a diary and illustrations that are part of the character's journey yeah so you know nothing (laughs) at all like what you just (laughs) described i am infatuated with the swallowed man by edward carey I'm excited to hear about this. I think you're going to enjoy hearing about this. Um, Let me tell you. I think, I know it's very early, but given that we're not doing another season this year, this might be my infatuated book of the year. 
Oh, which little was last year. Yeah, true. And also by Edward Carey. I think mm. I've just found a new favourite author. Yep, sounds like it. So this book, in the spirit of the season's inadvertent theme, <laughs> is a fairy tale retelling. It's a novella, and it's a retelling of Pinocchio from the point of view of Geppetto after he's been swallowed by the whale. Mm. So I haven't read or watched Pinocchio ever in my life because it freaks me out. Oh, have you actually not? Okay. So I like know the story, obviously. Yeah. But I haven't, I haven't partaken in that media. Interesting. I've only seen the Disney film, which absolutely terrified me as a child. Yeah, I've so seen. I enough, haven't like I haven't watched it as an. You adult. know, on the old VHS tapes when you get the trailers of the other Disney films. Yeah. So I've seen that, cool. and I was like, "That's enough." Yeah. That for me. Yeah. So I've never been interested in watching or reading Pinocchio, but obviously I know the story. For anyone that doesn't. A carver named Geppetto carves a boy out of wood and then he comes to life and then chaos ensues and at one point Geppetto has to go to sea and he gets swallowed by a whale and then Pinocchio rescues him. That's it. But in the Disney version, like, they get on pretty well <laughs> They're, you know. Well, it's like his, it's like his dad. Yeah, it's like, like his dad. Yeah. He's like, it's quite sweet. This is not that. Cool. <laughs> so... <laughs> You don't need to know Pinocchio to to like this, but I do believe that there are some cool Easter eggs in this, if you're a fan. So okay. that's cool. But what I wanted to say to begin with is that Edward Carey, for anyone that listened to our episode about Little, um, which is a book about Madame Tussaud, has replicated all of my favourite aspects of Little in this book, in that it does have really weird illustrations, it's got that like whimsical tone... And it's got a period setting, but this book feels completely different mm-hmm. because where little was, you know, a hor- lots of horrible things happened to quite a reasonable person, this book's just a descent into madness. Okay. So, you know, that's fun. Um, I'm trying to find an illustration to show you. I suppose you would go quite mad if you got swallowed up by a whale, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And somehow we're uh, still so alive. If I have to see this, then so do you. Oh, oh no! Yeah. Um. So the the <laughs> illustrations in this are extremely disturbing. There's also this one. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and I'll I'll talk more about that later. <laughs> but I just needed to see Emily's face there. That was for me. That wasn't for you guys. Uh. So yeah, as you'll tell from my rambling tone. I have basically just picked out a few of my favourite things about this book and I'm going to give you the lowdown. So I'll start with the prologue so that you've got some semblance of story. (laughs) This is how it begins. I am writing this account in another man's book by candlelight inside the belly of a fish. I have been eaten. I have been eaten, yet I am living still. I have tried to get out. I have made many attempts, but I must conclude that it is not possible. I am trapped within an enormous creature and am slowly being digested. I have found a strange place to exist, a cave between life and death. It is an unhappy miracle. I am afraid of the dark. The dark is coming for me. I have candles. They are my small protection. And I have this purloined book that I shall slowly fill. Before the last candle dies, I'll tell my tale. I'll give you fair warning. I can boast you no battlefields. 
This is no murderer's story. There is no great romance. But before all this, back on land, I did an extraordinary thing. An impossible thing. And for that thing, in order that the world may be put back in balance, I am now paying a severe cost. I shall tell my terrible shame, my tale of the supernatural, though so devastatingly real. Mm. I was going to ask that if they, if he made it like that him getting swallowed by the whale was like retribution for... I won't, I'm not going to read this passage out, but there is a bit where he's trying to rationalise what's happened and basically he comes to the conclusion that the whale is looking for Pinocchio to swallow him because him living is some sort of monstrous thing. Yeah. And so the whale has the whale is a monster to put it right. Mm. Uh is the rationalization that happens. I see. But this is the ramblings of a madman. Yes. So I love that prologue because as we've discussed before, I love a book that sets out the parameters of a story very unapologetically. Mm-hmm even when they make no sense. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm writing this account in another man's book by candlelight inside the belly of a fish. (laughs) It's just very strong mission statement. Yeah. And this kind of continues when Geppetto talks about how Pinocchio was created. Because although, as he's acknowledged, that it's supernatural, he doesn't really give much thought to that. Mm -hmm. Like, magic is not really explored. Right. Which I think is quite a ballsy move. So, here we go. This is very near the beginning. He was not got in the usual way, my son. Before I tell you how it happened, let me prepare the ground just a little better. Have you ever had a doll that seemed to live? A toy soldier that appeared to have a will of its own? It is not so uncommon. So then, as you read, if you place that old doll or soldier beside you, perhaps that should help. So to it. I carved him. He came to me out of wood. Just an ordinary piece of wood. I am a carpenter, to be clear. I had long desired to make a puppet, just such a puppet, so that I might tour all the world with him, or earn some little local money, or at least, I should say at most, to have at home a body, some company besides my own. I had known bodies in my past. I was not always so singular. Yet I never did make a family of my own. Despite everything... Despite my pride in my woodwork, despite the solid walls of my fine room, I confess, I found my days limited in company. I wanted another life again, to make, as only a carpenter of my skill might make, the sacred human form in wood, for companionship, and to show off without question my very great worth. I went about it in a creator's haze, as in one of those moments when you are close to the divine, as if something of me and yet something altogether greater were connected to my feeble form as I worked. It was sacred magic. Before long, I realised that something strange had happened. The first glint came just after I carved the eyes. Those eyes. How they stared at me, directly, with intent. Perhaps I should have stopped there. Yes, I have been known to imagine things like any other person, but this was different. The wooden eyes held their stare, and when I moved, they moved with me. I tried not to look. Are you, dear reader, an artist, even of the Sunday variety? Have you ever had those moments when, without quite knowing how, your art comes through with more grace, more life in it than you had supposed possible? 
Have you wondered what guided your hand as you created this strange, wonderful thing? And have you attempted to repeat it, only to discover that it never happens quite the same way again? I told you of this puppet's eyes. Staring eyes. Unnerving eyes. But they were my work, after all. So I steeled myself and carved on. Next, a nose. And again, as I carved it, the nose seemed to sniff. To come living before me. To grow, you see, long. Longer than I should have chosen, but the wood, do you see, gave me no choice. It was as if the wood commanded me, not I it. And then beneath, in a fever, I made the mouth. And this, oh you must believe me, this was the point of certainty, for the mouth made a noise. It laughed. It laughed. At me. Nearly a boy's laugh, but not quite. A certain squeak to it. This day was unlike any other. I had never yet before made something living. But here it was. I went on, carving neck and shoulders, a little wooden belly. I could not stop. Arms! Hands for the arms! And the moment it had hands, this is the truth, they moved. Have you ever seen a chair move on its own? Have you witnessed the promenade of a table or seen knives and forks at dance with one another? A wheelbarrow wheel itself? Buttons leap to life? No, of course not. And yet we all know, we all have experienced the disobedience of objects. And this object, mimicking as it did the rough shape of a body, presented itself to be a man. Right there and then, before my eyes, it mocked humans. It mocked me. Its first action on finding movement to pull the wig from my head. I flinched, I shuddered, but it was too late to stop. I was in a passion of creation. I was under command of the wood, and so I carved on. I gave him legs, feet, and the feet on divining life kicked with life. Kicked, that is, my shins. This terrible thing. You are an object, I cried. Behave like one. And it kicked once more, for it was loath to follow rules of objects. Rather, it threw down the book of rules and stamped upon it. Oh God, I said to myself, for I was quite alone in my room. What have I done? The thing moved. I screamed in terror. On finding it had legs, the thing got up. It took to its feet, tested their balance, found them sturdy. And then it walked to the door. It opened the door. And then it left. My sculpture, it ran. Away. The thing was gone. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it too. And, and I love it. Yeah. How oh. very Frankenstein. <laughs> it's, right? Right? It's so creepy. So this, oh, this is when he's still pretty sane. He's not been in the whale very long when he's telling you this. Right. Um, also, he's on a ship inside the whale. I should have, like, yeah. the whale swallowed a ship. He's on a ship inside yeah. the whale. And so he's writing it in there. And, yeah, at the start of this, you can tell that, like, he's he's recounting the way that his mind was then. He's seeing it as a thing. Uh, he's really not questioning that the thing came to life, though. Mm. Just stating that it did, mm-hmm. which, you know, fine. I wanted to move on and show you a scene with Pinocchio because he does rush out and get the thing back. Cool. Drags it back into his house. Yep. And then they start to converse. So here's a couple of scenes. There's not a lot of dialogue in this book because obviously most of it is him alone. But here's a couple of little bits. When he finds Pinocchio after that, he goes out looking for him. Pinocchio comes back to the house, the empty house, and sets a fire and burns his feet. 
because he's made of wood. Yep. Uh, and then Geppetto gets back in, carves some new feet. It's all good. Okay. So here we are. If you kick me, I said, I shall keep you up there on your hook. I shall not kick. I have learned my lesson. Very good then. May I go outside? You may not. I lit my pipe. How it flinched at the flame upon my match. How shocked it was at the smoke coming from my pipe. Put it out, put it out, we shall burn to death. This fire, unlike yours, I said, is safely contained within the bowl of my pipe. I puffed. Look, look at the weather, it exclaimed. I let free more smoke. What clouds? Do you make the clouds? Are you the one? How beautiful its observations. You see? Yet then, as I heard them, I failed to appreciate. It is but my tobacco burning. I fear the flames. Be calm. It is but a small personal bonfire. (laughs) Which I just had to read out for that line. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And this is later. The shutters shut up. We went about our lives, human and wooden. As I worked at my small carpentry, I let the thing play with odd little pieces I had in my possession. A list of his first friends. Ball, bent spoon, rusted chisel, hammer, blunted hacksaw. After a time, it was dark again and we were both quieter. I looked over at it. It had grown so still that I thought it had reverted to its former life as a mere object. I thought it had lost the trick of movement. For a moment, I was almost touched by this change, as if I should feel sadness instead of relief. But after a moment, it spoke again. It could not stay silent forever. Silence was not in its nature. At first, I did not understand the noise, convinced it was the singing of my floorboards as I walked upon them, my weight, you see, giving them voice, not the boards calling out themselves. But then, as I readied myself for bed, I stopped moving and still the creaking continued. I listened closer. Where shall I sleep then? It was wondering. Sleep? You sleep where I place you, right there on your hook. Sleep? What an idea after all. You do not sleep. That action is reserved for animals. Shriek. Such a shriek of wood. Words in the noise. What am I then? Branch, I said. Twig. Tree bit. Such a crack. Then again. Quieter. What am I? And I thought, you are an impossible thing. Something gone wrong. A monster, I thought. Oh, shame. Darling, I said at last, you are a piece of wood. I gave it a little bed, a towel for a blanket. I am glad to think of it now. I put them in a small wooden crate. It seemed happy with that, the odd thing. In time it closed its eyes. I watched it. I thought I saw its little chest upping and downing. Much easier to like, I thought, when it was silent and still. I liked the sight so much that I picked up a pencil and drew it while it was keeping still, as if it were an artist's lay figure, that relative of a shop mannequin. A counterfeit human. But I drew it as if it were a real child sleeping. A very fine piece of carving, I told myself. My best work. The more I was alone with it, even as it kept still, the more like a little boy it seemed. It was only later, when you put its face next to a real human one, that it failed to convince. Alone with it, you could almost believe. What a thing I had done. What a creation. What wood life. 
Suddenly, I felt deeply pleased with myself, with this thing. I felt accomplished. Foolish man. I did that, I whispered. Oh. I feel like such an idiot for never, like, making the connection between Pinocchio and Frankenstein. So but do this I. whole passage, like, that whole one, like, yeah. the like Pinocchio asking like what am I I'm just like that's what the creature does yeah. like it's so philosophical I know it's so oh it's so creepy and sad that's like the two words for Edward Carey yeah creepy and sad. <laughs> so yeah as you can see there one of the big themes of this book is parenthood mm. and anyone who's read any Max Porter like Grief is mm. the Thing with Feathers mm-hmm. or Lanny will probably really like this book because it's got a lot of the con- same concerns about like fatherhood and generational trauma yeah and so in this book fatherhood is always connected to art which like makes sense Mm because it's pinocchio so i thought i would jump to a very different vibe and this is geppetto talking about his own father okay because the more time he spends in the whale the more he just veers to random stories ever since losing my pino i have begun to look differently at objects wondering if they have life too At times, these days, I feel more at ease with a fishing net than I might be with a fisherman. That I might be companion more to a tin than a tinsmith. That I would be closer to needle than needlewoman. Have I been demoted? Do I yet count? Am I growing wiser, I wonder, as I am being punished? Sometimes, as I drift off to sleep in the dark, my own father comes back to me. Babo. I am not frightened of him anymore. Sometimes in this watery tomb I hear him sighing. He is put off by me, I know, irked that I am here when I should not be. No, no, he would be distressed. He would cry, I know, to see me come so old, so white. My own dear babble was all industry. I, his boy, was entirely idleness. Our family business was painting upon pottery. We provided decoration for plates, for oil jugs, for pots and cups and what have you. It was family tradition, the painting of this on that. In my childhood, his factory was the most famous business in all Collodi, at one time employing a full 30 people. The paints were always the same, the pattern never identical. It was the family pattern, you see, it was our birthright. And from my earliest scrawling, I too was directed to practice the same pattern upon paper, always and only this pattern, until I had proven my manhood by mastering it. On the day when I had at last got it down, and only then, I would come into my own. Yet I never could quite perfect it. It taunted me in my sleep, this design. Tried to etch its curves onto my skin, to tattoo me with itself. How that pattern persecuted me. It was the family fortune. I must draw it every day. Every morning, Father would look over my shoulder to inspect my painting. Five times through the course of the day, at the very least, he returned to look again. And every time, he would render the same verdict. No, no, not yet. Look again. Or, it is not right. Sometimes, even, you do this, I am sure, to insult me. But I never got it right. Some children are given lines to write out. I am a willful and ignorant child, one thousand times. But my endless punishment was that pottery pattern. Beautiful, you may say, as many do, but to me it was murder. No other creation but this. No other colours or lines or curves or bursts until it did me over. I could not devote myself to the same four-petalled central flower, to the smaller six-petalled flowers that framed it, 
to the meaningless lines between them. The same design repeated again and again as if it were the only choice. But every day burnt sienna, straw, yellow, violet and burgundy. I yearned for turquoise, the pattern not containing any. I called for cobalt. In my sleep I screamed out periwinkle. And when I dared to draw or paint something other, my father would find it out. He had such a nose for it. Rip it up and shine his anger upon me. Cruel, I would be called. Sometimes even false child. All this because I could not learn the family language. I was very good at school. Top of my class in Collodi. I did not mess about like my friend Antonio and the other boys. Rather, I liked the books. Liked to get lost in them. The teacher even ventured that one day I might go to university. My father said, no, I would not. All the learning I needed was at home, in the pattern. Mm. I'm sure that we all know this, but, you know, a father telling his son that he cannot be something, Mm. the son yearning to be something, a real boy, you might say. (laughs) Um... (laughs) It's some parallels, is yeah. what it is. Also, that line, like, the false child, yeah. just really gets me. It's so out of context. Like, yeah, yeah. Bizarre. Also, Collodi is the name of the author of Pinocchio. And that oh, is the town that he's from. Oh, that's cool. So I nice like little the, detail. Yeah, nice little detail. What am I on to now on my <laughs> random show and tell of this absolutely mad book? <laughs> One of my favourite bits, actually, it's this interlude in the middle where Geppetto decides to tell us about the five women he's fallen in love with in his life. Oh, okay. Um, which is really sweet. <laughs> um, it's all, like, obviously it's weird because it's Geppetto. Yeah. But he's clearly just really bored at this point, And yeah. he finds, like, five five bits of, like, pebble or something wash into the shark's belly. The whale's belly, whale. even. Mm-hmm. And he starts painting them on, right. on the pebbles. So this is the... I thought I'd read out the first one because they're all really cool, but this one's the funniest. Okay. And this is a story of love, is it not? I am by nature somewhat timid. I crept about in the background of life, quietly breathing the shadows, avoiding the taste of stronger light. I suppose my life would be one of observation only, of taking notes of the smaller events, events that other people should never even consider events. I was in the business of finding the mundane marvellous. I praised the sparrow and the daisy, a pigeon's coo, a thunderclap. My odyssey was to the greengrocers, my famous battle, a visit to the butcher. My king was the local policeman. But I took all I saw, all the little things, and carried them home with me. I nibbled at human relationships. A brief nod would sustain me all day. A slap on the back would keep me smiling for weeks. I was so deeply retiring, in short, that I might have disappeared altogether, were it not that I am, despite my father's deepest wishes, a carpenter. My art is bolder than I. It sends messages of me out into the world. When I am with wood and we work together, things come out of me that I should never have thought possible. From the start, I have found it easier to be brave with wood. As a young man, I busied myself constantly making little things, small fancies, a tiny house, dodos, lizards, Dolphins, porpoises, krakens, hydras, dragons, all kinds of beasts in wood. Unlikely worlds come to me through pine. I do see fairies in wood where I think other people just see kindling. And so I was compelled to bring the fairy out, so that all at last may see it. There are strange creatures everywhere. I summoned them in whittling in the privacy of my bedroom. 
what fancy I had in my childhood, what openness for the unlikely, I redden at it now. Such wonderments I shunned from my adult life, casting all away, embracing the only true life, the real and austere. It was better that way. I was full grown. Short of funds, as my father refused me even pocket money until I had mastered the pattern, and deep in distress, as a youth I took these small oddities I had made, my first children, to the Collodi market. At the far edge of the throng, and nigh on invisible in the shadow of a large bronze horseman, I cautiously sold my wares. The statue was of Ottavio Garzoni, patriarch of the wealthiest family in this region, a fine model of a mounted gentleman, the ideal human on the ideal horse. The same figure is to be found in several of our local squares. Indeed, for many years I thought it was mandatory that all town squares possess one. It was here, in the gloom cast by the huge horseman, that I found my place. I would lay out my large handkerchief, position my small wooden suggestions upon it, and so sit without ever calling for attention. I did not boast like the chicken sellers, for example. I did not scream on behalf of roasted chestnuts, and oh, the vendors of olives and cheese are a loud breed. I sat on in silence, quiet beneath the statue, hoping a little that none should come by, that I might take my makings home again and keep their company a little longer. It was one day I was thus situated that the occasion occasioned. Agnes. Oh, Agnes. She was small and she was very fair. Her hair was almost white, her eyelashes too, and her eyes were blue. A mole upon her chin, small freckles around her nose. She was a butcher's daughter. She wore big boots. I believe they had belonged to her brother, who had lost his life tumbling down a dry well. How we tumble, we humans. I was gazing down at my works when suddenly her boot was on my handkerchief. What's all this then? says she. I could not but be silent. I feared that I should cry. Are you having a picnic? No. No, indeed. They do not look comestible. No, and they are not, surely. What then? They are, so please you, little people, I ventured. Small creatures of science and imagination, made of wood. Yes, they are. Did you make them? Are they your fault? I did, yes, all my own. May I pick one up? Oh, truly, will you be careful? She scooped up a creature. What devil is this one, then? It is an elephant seal. You thought this up? No, so please you, it is a real thing to be found in the ocean. You saw one? No, I never. Not in life, but in a book at school. When I went to school, there was one. I saw that. It makes me smile. It does? Does it? I'll buy it, I think. I don't know what to do with it, mind. It's not what you would call useful. How sharp her words. Not what you would call useful. But there's something to it. I tell you what. It has a spirit. Oh, yes. Well, I do thank you for noticing that. I am made very glad by it. What a strange creature you are. I can't see you properly there in the shadow. Come out a bit. Let me have a good look. Oh. Ah. Come on, shift. Here I am. Yes, there you are at last. She stood staring at me out in the light until it grew too much. Can I go back now, if you don't mind? No, no, you may not. Stay where you are. Oh, dear. There's not much to you, is there? Barely anything at all, I shouldn't wonder. Tell you what, I like you well enough. Oh, thank you. 
You should eat more meat. How much do you eat then? Oh, not very much at all. I knew it. You should eat more. I am to have more meat once I have mastered the pattern. Our family business, that is. Meat, you see, is, on the whole, costly. It is. Well, I'll cut you some meat. Some meat for the creature. What do you say? Shall we shake on it? We shook on it. Her hand in mine. So many Sundays all at once. That was how it began. With a little wooden figure of an elephant seal and some cuts of pig. Over time, one market day after another, I measured my life then in market days. She bought the lot. Aww. <laughs> Two things. One, love the line where she's like, are these your fault? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and two, the bit where he's like, oh, I saw fairies in woods when other people saw kindling. It's such a good, like, arty writer metaphor. <laughs> I had to read that whole bit at the beginning because I was like, this is, this is poetry. Yeah. This is what that is. When it's like, I was in the business of finding the mundane marvellous. Yeah. I was like, same boy. That's a very, like, Neil Gaiman yeah. quote, I would say. <laughs> and I just, I'm not going to read the whole next bit of him and Agnes, but, so basically they start meeting up in a cemetery and, like, making out. Nice. Um, which is a vibe and a half. <laughs> um... But I just wanted to read this a little bit. I mean to kiss you, she said. There's just an exclamation mark after that. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I know, kiss back, won't you? It's not good if I'm the only one at it. So, how's that? Was that all right? Oh, what does she think of it? Better. You haven't done much of this, have you? Not oft, I must allow. No, me neither in truth. But I'm interested and want to learn. And I thought, you know, I thought of you. You're there and here I am. I was there. Only this. I am still here. Oh. (laughs) Isn't that so sad? Yeah. This is literally one paragraph, but I need to read it to you because, okay. Massa, like, as the book goes on, the entries into this diary obviously get shorter and a bit more sporadic yeah um so this is after like a big huge rant about like death and pain and like i can never get out of here blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. this is the next entry and yet despite everything there is life here a crab a tiny crab lives in my beard i shall call her olivia olivia gives me so much comfort as she busies about my great landscape of hair which is her home I tap her very gently upon her flat head as if she were my cat, and in return she flees sideways or lifts up her dear arms and nips me. How it grins me to be so nipped. I am so proud of her. She is so brave, she makes me braver. She is excellent good company. Oh. <laughs> Weird that she's called Olivia as yeah, well. Yeah, I know, right? There's, like, there's a lot of parallels, it's freaking <laughs> me out. But I was just like, what a random <laughs> entry. Oh. Delightful. Shall I read this out? Yeah. I'm going to read you a creepy one. Okay. I just keep going, because the book <laughs> just keeps going, man. But this is where shit really starts to get creepy. So I know we both like hate puppets and dolls and stuff. Yep. So this is going to scare the shit out of you. Great. Um, <laughs> so this is many, many nights into being on the Maria, which okay. is the ship. Did I dream it? I sometimes wonder, but I cannot say. My head is not quite to be trusted. What is certain is that last night I carved again. But am I to be trusted? I have been drinking. 
I have been at the wine. I tried it and found it went down very easy, so one tin mug followed another until a spirit grew inside me. It seemed to me like the very spirit of carving. There are ship's tools here, and the Maria is a wooden lady. I thought I should carve again. But did I? Or was it only dreaming? I think I may have spent hours at the wood. And yet, if so, then where is my labour? Where the proof of my work? Last night I think I made a child again. Oh, what a sin. I pulled a portion of the Maria apart. I see where it came from. I woke up in the morning and found it gone, and gone it remains. But such a face this time. A squished face, an ill-faced child, a wrong-faced boy. Not like the first, but a twisted idea of life. A shadow creature, a spleen child. Something from the dark, a deep, unhappy thing, is what I made. It was wine filling me with bad blood. And then this thing I made, it scuttered, it spidered. It clicked on the floor. It stuck its tongue out at me, a tongue black with wine. A child made of unhappiness, a black bone child. I carved him in the night, drunk and full of horror mood. I drunk dreamed him up, this ghost of dark wood, this child of the Maria and me. And he moved. Not the first son, but like the first son, he kicked. Like the first son, he ran away. Like the first son, I have a bruise here where he struck. But can I be certain? No, I cannot. After all, parts of the Maria do tumble and disintegrate of their own accord, and I cannot fairly say I remember the carving, the making of the boy. And the ill-faced puppet is nowhere to be found. If I made you, I am so sorry. May I unmake you? May you come undone? May you go back to the black wood you were? I have drawn him out in ink, this nightmare child. This is he, this is his likeness, as close as I am able. What a horror, this wooden wrongness, this totem of despair. No, finally I do not believe in you. Olivia, you were here. Tell me, am I imagining it? But Olivia only scuttles on, dear little. The thing came out of a bottle, an ill-humoured genie. I'll put you back. I look at the wine bottles. I shall uncork no more monsters. No. Finally, here is the decision. I did not make that unchild, that Nonokio. Instead, I made only bad dreams. Never no boy. Do not believe it. I could tidy myself up. I could neaten my beard. It has grown, you know, very long. It is an outrageous thing, this blanket attached to my chin. It is more and more my clothing. Indeed, I shall not trim it. For to tell the truth, I am proud of it. All my own work such growing. And perhaps if I am ever to step on anything but shark flesh, should I ever have a different land, I might make a good living exhibiting my great bearding. Perhaps this is the longest beard in history. Perhaps there is my fortune. Imagine a town square, a man sat in the centre with his beard coiled round and round, quite filling the place. I have tripped upon it often and shut it in cupboard doors and snagged it all over the place, but I'll not part with it. It is, after all, Olivia's home. I like to lay it out and step back to better contemplate its lovely length, to see Olivia about her playground. How it makes me smile. It does me good. I have had bad dreams of it being gone. I have a terror of waking up clean-shaven. And besides, how else can I tell how long I have been here, if not by the hairs of my chin-chin? It is an excellent timekeeper. Beard clock. Hair diary.
I have seen the ill-faced child again in the dark. He's here when the candle stutters. When I blow out the candle, he comes in an instant. There, in the darkness, the unhappy shadow. A cruel spirit, a wooden curse. I fear he means to hurt my boy. Quickly, quickly, hurry now, something other. Oh, tomato, I have just remembered you. Please forgive that it has taken so long. Tomato, lost to us now, I dedicate a little prayer to you. You would like a tomato, Olivia. I would share it. Dear God, bless all the dear tomatoes. Dear God, in case you have forgotten, I am down here in the belly. Dear God, I ate ripe tomatoes and they were so full of nature in the world. Dear God, please return me, please, to the tomato places. What can I grow here? I have no sun. What may I grow? Hair. I grow hair. Scarves of it. Sometimes in the night I hear the ill-faced child breaking up the ship, smashing it. Yet when I run to the noise he is no longer there, and yet sorrowful the Mario groans and comes to pieces. I am being haunted. It is a spiteful wooden thing that haunts me. Which shall go first, I wonder? Mind or ink or candlelight or eyesight? What helps me most of all is writing in this book. I must find something solid to do. Something rigorous and time-consuming. Something true. Something honest. There is a mirror here. It gets the news of my decaying. There I am, still there. What sores and infections. What, you again, I say when I see me. Hello. I've seen you somewhere before. Haven't we, Olivia? It's going to be my nightmares tonight. <laughs> oh, but wait. Uh, <laughs> no. How creepy is that drawing? Oh, I hate it. It's so scary. Why is the madness so well written? I was starting to question if he would take the ship apart to build things. Yeah, it's really... Yeah. It's awful. See, when you were talking about the mum's diary, like, <laughs> yeah. to send in madness, I was like, just you fucking wait, man. <laughs> um, anyway, I am going to finish, because I know I've been talking for ages, <laughs> but I thought I'd wrap up on a lighter note. Sure. Um, this next passage really warmed my heart, because even though that's a terrible passage about making things, he does find joy in making things um, and thinking up stories. Mm. And as a writer, obviously, relatable content. Yep. So this is a nice passage about how the smallest little things can inspire a whole story. So the, the captain that has been the captain of the ship is called Captain Tuckthus. And he knows this because it's his diary that he's writing in. I see. Oh, being more and more inside the captain's two rooms, I have found a hair of Tugthus. What could be more precious? I squint at it in my brave candlelight and I ask it, please, please give me something more. Give me knowledge. What is it I demand? Only this. Tell me, please, the colour of Tugthus's hair. Was he dark or fair? Perhaps already greying? Had time stamped him? Did he curl on top, I wonder? Were you disorderly or did you part? You did not crop, and I am so pleased by that, for you are no felon, Harold. So, with hair held tight between right thumb and forefinger, I approach the flame. Not too close, for hair does love the flame, and will perish by it in an odorous instant. So then, reveal yourself. It is red. Oh, Tugthus, you are a ginger nut. Somehow I have always known it. 
for you, you see, are like as a candle to me. I warm myself by your fire, hearth Harold. This makes you pale, sir. Freckled, perhaps. Or have you over time lost those little dots of joy, of youth? Your eyes, then, a bright blue? No, green, I should say. I am coming to know you now. I see your hat. It has known the exactitude of your head top. It has covered up red like a candle snuffer. Yes, yes, I know you better now. Where shall I place this sacred line of red? I shall trap it within glass, in a bottle from the medical chest. I tie the hair to a weight and let it drop there, safe now, perfectly imprisoned. There it is, held beneath a stopper in my museum. And then I'm just going to skip ahead. This is, I think, two nights later. I think I will, I think I may, Captain Tug this, give words to your life. For the story of your fate has come to me in a dream. I saw him, the ruddy captain, upon mountainous waves, climbing high and falling low, clinging to a dislodged piece of Maria that came from the main vessel as the great fish attacked her. About his length it was, this wood and width too, like a dancing partner. Tugthus was separated from his crew. They were surely clambered thick upon a dinghy and made it safe to land. Not so the captain, for he was the sea's plaything. He was thrown and lapped and chewed upon, but he did not let go of his Maria piece, not him. For weeks he was sent this way and that, back and forth, upwards and down, his brain beaten, his body withered. But in his head, still there, was Harold Tugthus, captain. His thoughts were all Denmark and daughter and wife, son too, though perhaps less so, or perhaps sometimes more. He saw them, his family, in the deeps below, waving at him. In the long bobbing nights the ghosts came, but he did not let go. In time he grew so waterlogged that the only tight warm place was deep in his skull, which his piece of Maria kept dry above the endless drink. What things he saw while floating, all his life sailing by. He never called out, nor even despaired. On and on, there and there, now storming, now calming, a red beacon adrift. I cannot speak for all the greens of his misery, I cannot name you his blues or his greys. Blacks I can do, those I know of. But seaweed, though he had nearly become, the flame of his hair was still burning bright when at last did he, Captain Harold, cease his travelling. He washed ashore, barely breathing, not far from Cadiz, having been pushed there all by all the dead of Trafalgar. It was said he was more fish than man by then, that in parts his skin had grown scales and his eyes were become fish eyes. Such tales are told of seafaring folk, of course, and not all are to be credited. All I know for certain is that they never could separate him from his piece of Maria, even after he was returned to his home and wife. He had grown, in his time afloat, highly sensitive, the captain had. Whenever they ran him a bath, he wept. Even the sight of someone blowing into a steaming cup of broth creating that limited whirlpool, unnerved him. He never did go down to the docks again, but he ate fish still and with gusto, only fish, in fact, and preferred it uncooked. Whether Captain Tugthus ever allowed his son home, I cannot say. My thoughts are all of freedom now. But he has gone home, Tugthus. I do report it. He is at home. His hair is greyer now, but a hint of red still remains. <laughs> Which I just think is cool. Yeah. Like, obviously, it's a really disturbing story. Yeah. But that way of, like, you find a little object and then you make up a whole person and yeah. a whole life off of that object. 
is pretty cool. That is cool. And the fact that he's literally gone mental at this point. Yep. But he's still, <laughs> he's still like, I think that he went home. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like I say, I I don't have a point to discuss in this book, but I think you get the gist that it's just fucking weird. <laughs> Sounds amazing, though. It I really want to read it. I still haven't read Little yet either, so I need to read that as well. The, but, the fact yeah. that I've read so much and, like, big chunks of that there and I've not even scratched the surface mm. of, like half of what goes on in it and it's not that big yeah it's very dense there's a lot that happens so i definitely recommend picking it up nice yeah so for our writing chat our final writing chat of the season we wanted to kind of keep ourselves accountable i guess future (laughs) selves and lay out, I think, some goals or, like, hopes for the coming year, writing-wise. Yep. So, do you want to go first? Sure. So, I finally finished my second redraft. <laughs> Literally just, like, a couple days before we're recording this. Which hopefully means that any redrafting I do from now on is just, like, prettying it up. Yeah. <laughs> and making it look and sound its best. So, in terms of goals... I've just sent this draft to a couple of people. You're one of them. <laughs> I'm um, Hannah, our guest for this season was the other. Because, I don't know, I just want to hear like, from people outside of Steph and I mm. like, what they think of it. I think that'll be helpful because obviously Steph is amazing help but she's like just as close to the story as I am now so it'll be good to have like more people's perspective. Mm. Just in case there is anything that like you think needs like worked on or like or even just to know what you think is good because that's good to know um so my goal is to try and query this year or at least to start the process of it so the first step of that would be to start looking for a literary agent and I think this time last year I thought I'd have already done that by now Mm. because I was like Oh, I wrote the first draft in a year, so it'll be less than that to, to redraft it, which is not true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've just it's just been busy, so I've just fallen behind on where I want to be. But I think that finishing this draft, hearing feedback from you and Hannah will just like be a big motivation. And then my other sort of goal is to keep working sort of behind the scenes on my other novel. It's not one I'm, like, actively writing all the time, but I don't want to sort of let it go stagnant. Mm. So I try and sort of touch in with it, like, every now and then. I actually sent a tiny bit to Steph, and she immediately was like, you need to keep writing this. (laughs) So that's good to know. That is, yeah. (laughs) Um, And I actually think, while I'm waiting for you guys to read, like, the draft I've just sent you, I might work on that one for a bit. Not, like, putting all my attention into it because this one is still my, like, priority and, Mm. like, the one that I want to finish. But hopefully just, like, getting some slightly more concrete ideas down to at least, like, work out what the story of that second novel is so that, like, once I hopefully get, you know, like, to the querying point, I have another thing to work on. Yeah, and also, like, it'll give your brain a break from thinking about this one. Yeah, exactly, like... It's, I think it's good to have another thing to work on. Like, yeah. I just think it's good for your brain. <laughs> nice. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my goals. What about you? 
So, yeah, I can't remember the last time that we did a check-in on here, but... It might have been last season. So I think I've released a book since the last time. Yeah, I don't think you announced that on here. I don't know if I did. I wrote a book, guys. <laughs> um, don't know if I said. <laughs> yeah, oh, we probably should have... Uh... I'm sure I did. I must have said at some point. Anyway, my debut poetry collection, Urbane, came out last year around Christmas. So that was pretty exciting. But it was also pretty unexpected since, I think I've mentioned this before, I wrote it in 20 days last year. Yeah. So it was a a 20 poems in 20 days challenge and now it's a book, which is cool. But since I wrote those 20 poems last summer, I've barely written anything like concrete. Mm. my novel work has been sporadic at best and I still have a whole other collection of poems which was supposed to be my first book sitting ready to go so just in a whole writing check in what I have been writing and really enjoying is my weekly column at my job at the paper that's something that I just began at the start of this year Mm -hmm. and I've really loved having that because it's like little mini essays or rants on whatever I'm passionate about that week uh, it's more formal than this, but it's the same vibe as this. Yeah. So I feel like it's a space where as well where I'm pulling together real world events and my like abstract thoughts. Mm-hmm. So that is good writing practice for me. And it keeps me consistent. So I feel like that has given me a lot of experience of finishing things. Mm-hmm. Because I have only eight hours a week and I have to put out a column. Yeah. Um. In those eight hours, so I think like just getting into that practice has made me being like, right, okay, what am I going to do next? What am I going to finish? Mm-hmm. So, usually I have my writing seasons in autumn and spring, and I kind of missed my autumn one last year because of like life. So I feel like now it's spring, like, <laughs> starting fresh, mm-hmm. and I was really struggling for ages to decide on whether to focus on my novel, or write another poetry collection, or like submit work that I already have or whatever Mm -hmm. so I think what I've decided is that I'd like to work on getting my second poetry collection which is really my first one Mm -hmm. out there whether that's self-published or through a publisher I don't really care but I think by this time next year I would like it to be out in the world Mm -hmm. I am also planning to release just for free on my own website some chapters of my master's project which Mm. was a series of essays Mm -hmm. I did on female-led pop because I'm releasing so much content weekly now anyway and this stuff's all just been sitting in a drawer and I haven't spent any time like tarting it up and putting it out. Yeah. So I think that would be a good thing to do. And then, but those are all again things that already exist. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to actual creating things, I know that I'll always be writing little poems anyway now and again and I'll let myself do that. But primarily I think I want to be taking my novel a bit more seriously. Yeah. So I'm hoping by season five, I'll have another book out or coming out, some essays out on my website and at least the bare bones of a story from a novel, the bare bones of a draft. Yeah. Those are my plans. I think that'll be good for you to have like, to like prioritise the novel a bit more. Because you do do prioritise poetry, so that's why you do so much, whereas like it's another thing that you want to do so it's good to like focus on it for a bit yeah yeah and I think like I 
it's weird, but like writing in sentences is not something that comes naturally to me. <laughs> but writing my columns really helped me with that. Like yeah, writing, yeah, yeah. Like writing prose yeah. habitually. I feel a bit more comfortable with that now. So I think it's not going to be such a shift to sit down with my laptop and do it. Mm-hmm. But also I think just because I've got so much poetry already in the bag, I'm like, I don't want to write a third poetry collection when that where when you've the original even... first one yeah. isn't now. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah, this has got to be the time for the novel. We're going to do it. It's going to be good. <laughs> do you have a quick fire favourite for us? Yes, my quick fire favourite is a song. It's Missing Peace by Van Stroy which is perhaps the happiest song I've ever recommended on here. Okay. <laughs> it came out last year, but I've been listening to it a lot recently with like the nicer weather because mm. it feels very like spring-summer vibes. And it's just a lovely song about how when you're with someone, you feel like you're complete. Caveat, I don't think you have to be in a relationship <laughs> to be a complete person. But for a love song, it's it, a nice idea. It's a nice concept. Yeah. yeah. So I thought I'd just read out the chorus because um, it is my favourite bit. <laughs> um, and the lyrics are... Because when I'm in a room with you, that missing piece is found. You know, when you're by my side, darling, nothing can bring us down. It's like when you're far away from me, I get lost in the crowd. Because when I'm in a room with you, that missing piece is found. Cute. It's just a very joyful song. It's so sweet. I feel like Van Stroy's Riptide got like seriously overplayed mm. for many years. <laughs> but I actually love so many of his other songs. And yeah, this one is just like great spring summer vibes i recommend it i still love riptide i don't care if it's over i like riptide it's just the one when it comes on sometimes i'm like oh, i'm gonna skip that because mm. i've heard that so many times yeah that's fair but yeah i do like van Stroy. <laughs> i was once serenaded with riptide like, were you back when it was actually a romantic thing to yeah do. that's cute yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's well, your quick for our favorite mine is gotta be bridgerton season two yeah, I, I had it. It's on the list. I yeah. just figured that you were going to mention it. Oh my god, so good. So much better than season one, I would say, which might be controversial. Mm, yeah, no, I. Yeah, no, I probably preferred it actually. Like, yeah. I loved season one. Yeah. But I feel like season two is much more seamless in the way it connects, like, all the plots together. Yeah, that's true. I'm obsessed with Benedict Bridgerton, as I know you are too. <sighs> I love him so He's much. so good. The bit where he, like, screams out the window, like, you will all be witness <laughs> to my talent, or something, kills me. Yeah. Can't get enough of Anthony and Kate being tortured. Like, yep. just good good vibes all around. Yeah. You are the bane of my existence and the object of all my oh, desires. Wonderful. Just, oh, so good. Also obsessed with the way Edwina handles conversation. <laughs> There's a really good scene where Anthony's like firing questions at her mm-hmm. and she just so gracefully gives all the right answers. Yeah. It's like I'm like she'd make such a good politician. <laughs> Scheming yeah. Dowager and Lady Danbury having a laughing fit. Yeah. Excellent scenes. Yep. Queen getting coked up every five minutes. <laughs> Excellent scenes. Um yeah. Vitamin String Orchestra cover of You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette, mm-hmm. which was one of my favourite songs growing up. Mm-hmm. Scenes. Love all of it. Anthony in the lake with the, the shirt. Yeah, big, Anthony big in the lake. Mr. With Darcy the shirt. vibes. Huge Mr. Darcy vibes. <laughs> it's not polite to stare, continues to yeah. stare. Yeah. 
Um, just so much to love, really. Yeah. Not even touched Eloise and Theo. Oh, I love Theo so much. Yeah. I well, love I love Theo. Eloise as well, obviously. But, like, he's just such a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. in the Bridgerton world. Anyway, uh, if you don't watch Bridgerton, you, like, this isn't for you. <laughs> this is <yeah>. for us. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, good times all round. Stephanie's already been sending me loads of stuff to watch because we're mutually obsessing. Yeah. Um, But if anyone else wants to send me some good memes, then I'm all open (laughs) open to that. Do you have a route for us? I do indeed. It's a very basic one given what my book was, but I decided to do Pinocchio. Oh, nice. So Pinocchio is a combination of the Italian words pino for pine and occhio for eye. It's all pino is also an abbreviation of Giuseppino, which is a diminutive for Giuseppe, which is the Italian form of Joseph, and Geppetto in this actually is called Joseph and calls himself Joseph. Ah. And Geppetto's like a pet name. So, in that way, Pino is, like, the son of Joseph, Mm -hmm. uh, which is quite cool. And I have a little bonus passage from the book to do with this, because (laughs) Edward Carey is so smart. (laughs) Father, what is my name? I should have a name if I'm going to school. Puppet. That is not a name. Wooden monster, I thought. Haunted spirit begot from loneliness. Impossible life. Miracle and curse. Spectre stump. But I said, "Mm, wood chip, wood louse, sawdust, shaving, lumber life, kindling, pine pit. Yes, there must be some pine, some pino in the name. Pino spero, pino sido, pino rizio. No, just plain pino, only pine, for that is you. Or for fondness, to add a nut, a noche. Pinocchio. Pinocchio, he asked, excited. Yes, then. Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that is my route. What nice. is your insight? My insight is an old classic. I've got a quiz for us. Ooh, love a quiz. So, this season has been by Total Fluke. Very fairy tale <laughs> themed. Extremely. Uh, we've had lots of fairy tale retellings, lots of discussion about tropes and bedtime stories and things like that. So I have a quiz for us, which is which fairy tale stereotype are you? I'm all. I'm so here for it. I love it. Okay, finish this sentence. Okay. Once upon a time, a princess was cursed by a fairy. There was a beautiful queen who could never fall in love. A kingdom was cloaked in darkness. A magical book awakened with a scream. Oh, it's got to be the second or the fourth. I'm going to go a beautiful queen could never fall in love. Cool. You're wandering alone in the woods. Who do you run into? I would never go anywhere alone. A very helpful stranger, but oh, what big teeth he has. I don't wander, and I know exactly who I'll meet in the woods. Or the fairest creature in all the land. I mean, if if I'm going for my actual life, (laughs) likely... A helpful stranger. Oh, what big teeth he has. Okay. What's the magic word? Wingardium Leviosa. Bippity boppity boo. Pizza. 
Abracadabra. Oh, I'm going to go for a classic Abracadabra. Yeah, I think that's what I went for. I like a classic. Okay, this one you need to look at. So the question is, the fate of the kingdom is in your hands. What's your reaction? And there's five gifts Okay. to pick from, which I hope you can see. The kingdom, the fate of the kingdom's in my hands. I think probably one where she's peacing out. (laughs) What do you sing for your big musical number? (laughs) I just can't wait to be king. You ain't never had a friend like me. When will my life begin? You'll be in my heart or a whole new world. All bangers. (laughs) Oh man, I used to sing a whole new world in the shower all the time. (laughs) But... Probably when will my life begin? That's what I picked. I love that song. <laughs> I sing that song all the time. Yeah, it's the every time that my alarm goes off at seven. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what's the one thing you would never give up? My determination, my courage, my hope, my sense of humor, my loyalty. Oh, stuck between determination and loyalty. Probably loyalty. Pick a magical accessory. Ooh, fun. Wand, enchanted mirror, invisibility cloak, magic hat, magic lamp, Dorothy's shoes. See, that's not fair because the shoes are just cool shoes. Yeah, so that was my exact thought. Was that I was like, but I want the shoes. Yeah, but, but not I for don't the... need them to be magic. I just yeah. want those shoes. So, like, I'm going to take that off the table because that's <laughs> silly. Yeah. Probably an invisibility cloak. Although I never understood why that didn't also block out any sounds you made. That seemed like a design flaw. Anyway. That is very true. How do you meet your one true love? <laughs> I'm browsing the library and our hands reach for the same book at the same time. I'll let you know if it ever happens. <laughs> our eyes met from across a crowded dance floor. I cast a spell summoning them to me. Oh, now see it. Again, it's the second or the fourth. <laughs> I like the idea that I'd cast a spell and then summon them to me, so we'll go with that. Okay. Who would you spend your happily ever after with? Random choices, by the way. Okay. Like I'm like, who came up, came up with these? Emma Watson, Demi Lovato, Drake, Michael B. Jordan, Selena Gomez, Harry Styles. Well, the only ones that I really, really like out of those are Harry Styles and Emma Watson. And if it's a forever and ever, I'm going to have to go with Harry Styles. Yeah, that is exactly my choice. <laughs> to be fair, Selena Gomez seems like a nice lassie, but I just have no strong feelings about her. Yep. Okay, we have your answer. So you are the cute but sassy animal sidekick. Woo! <laughs> you may be a sidekick, but you definitely know how to shine. You bring the sass when people around you are being a little ridiculous and they could never get by without your friendship. Oh, I like that. Which is cute. That is cute. And mine was... You're the damsel in distress. (laughs) (laughs) You're gorgeous, loving and kind. You have a gentle soul which sometimes makes people think you need to be protected. But it turns out you're pretty awesome at saving yourself and the ones you love. Yeah, okay, that's fairly accurate. Yeah, I'm like, thanks for... Not just saying that I'm a total damsel, thank you. No, that's cute. There we go. I like that. Maybe we should do um, a version of, like, an infatuated logo photo shoot where you're a damsel in distress <laughs> and I'm your sidekick. Kid, do. That'd be cute. <laughs>
cool so that is us this week and this season if you have any comments or questions then our email is infatuatepodcast at outlook.com we also have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mention which is banging now by the way it's so long it's like it's wait i'm gonna check right now how long it is and this isn't even putting in like the 10 songs (laughs) that i still need to add it is currently at eight hours and five minutes long outstanding that's silly (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there please do that thing we love you all very much and we will see you all in a little while Yeah, see you in June. Yep. (laughs) Bye. Bye.